So we have been at this study uh, in Daniel. This will be the eighth study tonight that we're going to look at. And we have been looking primarily at the court tales that are recorded in the first part of the book. And now we're going to get into what is called the apocalyptic uh, portion of the book. This um, this particular chart here, uh, I put up a couple of times before. This uh, reminds us that the book of Daniel is written in two different languages, in Hebrew and then interspersed with some Aramaic, and then it closes out in Hebrew. Now, what's interesting here is the Aramaic in, is a has a kind of a um, kind of a how do I transitional chapter. So, in chapters one through six, it's primarily prose. It's narrative. It's stories of Daniel and his three friends. Uh, part of the uh, court tales and the legends that come from them, and then. The apocalyptic section is in Hebrew in chapters 8 through 12, but here we are in chapter 7 that we're going to look at tonight. It's still in Aramaic, but it actually has transitioned over into a different type of literature, and so we can kind of summarize what we have already looked at in the first section uh, we've entitled this study Risky Resistance because there's a lot of refusal that's going on. Daniel and his friends refuse the king's food. Um, they refuse to bow down to the statue. Um, they begin to make predictions of reversals of fortune and position of the kings that are uh, the king that is in power. And uh, last week we looked at Daniel who prayed three times a day with his window open. And uh, he refused to abide by a law that was put in place by two other uh, presidents that uh, had been in, um, had been appointed. Uh, and uh, these two presidents um, turned on Daniel. We think there's some racism that's involved in this, uh, Daniel being the Jew and these other two uh, individuals are individuals that are a part of uh, the Babylonian Empire. Um, and so what we find is Daniel distinguishes himself as one who is committed to his God. And as he does so, he is thrown into the lion's den. He comes out with a miraculous deliverance and um, he is elevated again, back into a position of prominence, while the other two presidents or administrators uh, are thrown into the lion's den, and they are devoured uh, as they are thrown into the pit. Now, that brings us to this second section here. And earlier in the book, what we saw was dreams were a motif of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who had dreams. He didn't know what they meant. He needed an interpreter, and Daniel was the one that was able to uh, bring about the interpretation. Um, what we also see taking place is that after Daniel interprets um, what's going on, uh, there is these moments that take place of, of visions that are given about the future of the king. Now, that's the theme that will transfer on over into chapter 7. There's going to be another dream, 
here in chapter seven. This time it's Daniel's dream, and uh, they are. Uh, it is symbolic of changes that are coming amidst the uh, empire. And in this particular uh, section, these visions of change, uh, we are given a retrospective back to the time of Belshazzar. He was the one that saw the handwriting on the wall. And what we find is the dream talks about the rise of several beasts. And they are represented in this uh, graphic here, a lion, a bear, uh, a leopard, and one that is nondescript uh, in terms of a specific, specific animal type, but is one of the great beasts that arise out of the sea. So here is what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to take a look at uh, these uh, five sections of chapter seven. Again, every chapter in the book of Daniel seems to be pretty lengthy, and this is the case tonight as well. So we're going to talk about the time of Belshazzar, the rise of the beast, the heavenly judgment that comes, and then a summary of that vision, and then an elaboration or an explanation given to Daniel of what these four beasts represent. What we have seen so far is that there are several things that we call chiasms that have occurred in this book. And these are parallel panels that take place in the book. And chapter seven completes the chiasm. So take a look here. Uh, a chiasm is like a, uh, a letter V on its side. So, uh, the panels are in parallel. In chapter two, you have a vision of four empires. That's uh, in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and the head and the chest and the uh, thighs and the feet. That also is in parallel to chapter seven of these four empires, but this time it's not a statue, it's four different beasts. Then uh, uh, panel B is the faithfulness of the Jews. Uh, first, the three young men who refuse to uh, bow down to the statue, and they are rescued uh, out of the fiery furnace. The parallel panel in chapter six that we saw last week is the faithfulness of a Jew, singular, Daniel, and his rescue out of the lion's den. And the two middle panels are the judgment on empire and two different uh, kings uh, experience the judgment of God. First is Nebuchadnezzar, where he goes crazy, um, and then he comes back to his senses uh, that we uh, saw in chapter four. And then in chapter five, we saw the handwriting on the wall and the judgment of on the empire that Belshazzar is uh, represented as being um, empowered. So uh, another chiasm, this is a... Um, a, a Hebrew literary device. And uh, so what we find here in chapter seven is even though it's a retro dated uh, picture of um, Belshazzar, most scholars think that ultimately what's hidden in plain sight is this is a commentary on Antiochus Epiphanes, who's in power in the second century, who's bringing all kinds of persecution and havoc upon the Jewish people. So that's where um, we've been over the last several chapters and where we're going to go tonight. So uh, any thoughts, any comments that you have?
All right, so let's work through these five main points in the chapter here. So look, take a look at verse one. It says, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. So let's stop there for a second. So this vision of Daniel is associated with King Belshazzar. Well, we already saw in chapter five that his kingdom fell uh, to uh, Darius the Mede uh, when the handwriting was on the wall. So this, is, again, is a kind of a retrospective bridge element in the book to be able to move into the apocalyptic section that uh, gives an account of what is to happen in the near future. So the way to understand this dream is the portrayal of Belshazzar here is a stereotype. And the stereotype is really speaking toward what Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is going to experience ultimately when his kingdom is brought down. Daniel has a, a vision. Now he is, a, it, we are told, and we're going to talk about this at the end, uh, that he had a dream. And in the dream, he sees these four beasts that are going to come up out of the sea. And what we find is this, again, is that four kingdom scheme that uh, talks about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And then there's an interpretive question on whether the last beast is uh, actually Greece or if it's Rome. That makes a big difference on how people sometimes interpret uh, eschatology, end time events. So we haven't gotten to that section in a couple chapters. We're going to be looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel. But uh, at this point, we just want to concentrate on the beasts as they are represented in these, um, these animals here. Any thoughts, questions? Okay, so what we see taking place is the rise of four beasts, beginning in verse two. It says, I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, I watched another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping on what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by its roots. There were, the, uh, there were eyes like human eyes on, in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. 
So when you look at this, you think somebody used too much cannabis, right? <laughs> this is kind of crazy vision, animals that are represented uh, in a way that we recognize parts of it, but other parts of it are really strange. This is not unusual, though, in this day and age in the ancient Near East. Uh, you'll find that some of this imagery is uh, very apropos and dramatic and attention-grabbing. It first begins by talking about the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Um, in First Enoch, uh, a non-canonical book, uh, the four winds uh, are equated with four angels. Now, we don't know if that's what's taking place here or not, but it's possible. And the winds are stirring up the sea, but it's interesting, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is suggesting that it they attacked the sea, which implies kind of a war that's going on, a, a, a war between heaven and the sea. And then out of the sea come these monsters. And these monsters, it seems as though, um, represent uh, something of the enemy of God and the forces of chaos. Um, and these beasts arrive one by one on the scene to do battle with the winds. And I guess this is a very imaginative way of talking about the battle between good and evil, between God and those forces that want to oppose God and push back against God's rule. So the story has a similarity in a Semitic myth uh, between the storm god Marduk and the battle that Marduk had with the sea god Tiamat. So again, these stories are sometimes similar in different cultures, and uh, they speak in a variety of ways to a lot of the things that happen in the life of the nation of Israel. And what we find is that the winds even are represented as the uh, servants of God. You'll see a couple of uh, cross-references here where you can look in Job and in Psalm 89 and, and see that. But what I'm going to have, uh, what I'm going to read for you now is Isaiah chapter 51 for a second in verses 8 through 11, because Isaiah, it appears, is uh, very co cognizant of the powers of Babylon and Assyria and what they are doing to the chosen people of God. So in Isaiah chapter 51, it says this in verses 8 through 11. It says, uh, listen to me, I'll start in verse 7. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction, do not fear disgrace by men and do not be shattered by their taunts. For moss will devour them like a garment and worms will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever and my salvation for all generations. Wake up, wake up, the arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces, who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, 
who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over. So what is being referred to there is the Exodus. But isn't it interesting that it's described in terms of the empire that was holding uh, Israel captive was Egypt. And uh, it's talked about as the sea monster being pierced. And it's talked about Rahab, not the not the prostitute that hid Joshua, uh, but uh, a form of a monster who has been hacked into pieces. So very symbolic language that is being used to talk about God fighting on behalf of his people. And so what we find is that many of these descriptions that we see taking place here um, are really talking about kind of the primordial waters that were familiar to the ancient Near Eastern cultures. And um, what we find is God having them in his control and being able to um, uh, to defeat these monsters that want to take uh, his people out. Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts on that? Okay, so let's talk about the beasts themselves for a moment. So there's four of them, one being a lion. The first one obviously is not surprising. Um, the uh, lion was represented on the Ishtar gate in Babylon uh, with wings as well. And that's the way it's represented here. Um, I can go back and show you a picture of that. That's the idea. That's the picture, if you can see behind the text there, of a representation on the Ishtar gate in Babylon. And so a lion is a very appropriate um, picture that um, is being applied here. What's fascinating here is that um, it's not just the personification of the power of lions, but even of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It goes on and talks about uh, him, this, this one having um, a human mind given to it. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar kind of went crazy there for a while, and he was in ex exile for a while uh, as he lost his mind. And then as he recognized the God of heaven, his sanity was returned to him. And then he resumed his rule. So maybe the picture here is not only of courage and strength, but also of swiftness of conquest, because that's what Babylon did. They conquered the known area of that day second beast is a bear. Now, you'll notice here, uh, it says in verse five, that this bear was raised up on one side. That might be a picture of the Medo-Persian empire. It might give credence to what I'm going to show you in the next slide, to the Roman view rather than the Greek view of what these uh, empires are. But it had three um it had three tusks in its mouth uh, or three ribs in some translations. I'm going to come back to that. I think uh, as in the new revised standard uh, translation here, tusks is probably a good translation because of what we see in a couple of apocrypha across references that I'll read to you in a moment. 
third beast, a leopard. Um, this one has numerous uh, heads and wings. Um, it's possible that the wings and the heads represent different rulers within this empire. And then the last one is of a very strange beast, nondescript, that has 10 horns, which could be representative of 10 different uh, Hellenistic rulers that um, uh, helped administrate uh, the kingdom of Greece. So I mentioned a moment ago, and let me, uh, I'm going to minimize this for a second here so I can get all the slide, at least on my computer, so I can see it. So notice there are two columns here, the Roman view and the Greek view. All scholars agree that these four beasts represent different kingdoms, but there's disagreement upon which kingdoms are being talked about. So in the left-hand column there, it, it's the Roman view is that the first beast is the Babylonian Empire. The second one is the Medo-Persian Empire, kind of a combination empire um, that was in power from 539 to 331. The third one is Greece that um, that represents the conquest of Alexander the Great from 331 to 146, although he didn't live that long. Actually, Alexander the Great didn't live very long at all. Uh, and then Rome uh, and Rome uh, be, being the uh, the particular um, empire that is in power during the days of Jesus. Now, this will come into play a little bit in regard to the 70 weeks of Daniel. A lot of uh, scholars think that the first 69 weeks of Daniel are fulfilled, but the 70th week is not. So we're going to have to hold on to that for a couple more chapters before we get to that text. However, on the right-hand column is the Greek view, and it represents not Rome, but the four different kingdoms represent Babylon, Media, Persia, the separately, um, and then Greece. So in this particular interpretive scheme, uh, Med the Medes and the Persians, even though they're kind of in power uh, and it, <clears throat> at the same time, they are two separate kingdoms. Um, the Persian Empire um, is one that is more powerful than the Medes. Uh, and then finally, Greece. And it seems as though the book is moving toward um, uh, the little horn that's represented in this paragraph being Antiochus Epiphanes. So, okay, you can probably make a case for both of them. Um, and it probably will determine how you're going to use the book of Daniel in your end time scenario or your how you will how you see uh history playing out but nonetheless uh there is different ways of looking at it so having said that um i'm going to come back here to um the text and uh, the other thing i want you to notice here as it represents uh, a war that's going on, there is um, these mythological figures that 
appear in the art of the ancient Near East and even are represented in other uh, prophets in the Old Testament. So there's a cross-reference in Hosea 13, 7 and 8 that uses some of this imagery. The composite creatures with other non-creature-like uh, uh, elements is seen in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, where it, it it is something that Ezekiel has a vision of. What I see here in this particular chapter is these kingdoms represent different cycles of oppression, judgment, and then the next kingdom. So you're going to notice here there is oppression that occurs, judgment that comes, and a replacement kingdom. Oppression, judgment, kingdom. Oppression, judgment, kingdom. So there's three cycles of that. And then finally, you end on the fourth one uh, where there is this idea of a coming of a son of man um, who will ultimately put these kingdoms down. So that, again, is why some interpreters think of this as kind of end of uh, the end of history type of scenario. So you can take that for what you want, but um, that's what we're noticing so far here in the text. Okay, how can I help clarify this for you? I know this goes so counterintuitive uh, to Western way of communicating, but is there any way that I can help clarify it? And the best way to do that is to ask a question or make an observation. Yep. Okay, let's concentrate on the fourth beast for a moment. So it says here that in his vision, in his dream, he saw a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. So even though um, we can't define what this beast is, you noticed on the this picture that I showed, a lot of times uh, different artists render this fourth beast as a dragon. Um in the book of Revelation, uh, there's the dragon that appears there as well. As well. So it might be uh, a legitimate thing. However, let me go back to the other slide. What's interesting, though, is if all of this is leading to the time of the Maccabean Revolution and the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, some scholars think, and you'll notice right here, um, that what it is alluding to is not a dragon, but an elephant, that the fourth beast is an elephant. Now, the reason that is stated is because of the way the Greeks brought war. So um, here in 1 Maccabees, and I'll read it, uh, you probably don't have the Apocrypha in your Bible, but I'll read a couple of selections, and I, I just want to show you maybe that's what this is referring to. So this is 1 Maccabees chapter 1, 
and it names Antiochus, verse 16. When Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of Egypt in order that he might reign over both kingdoms. So Antiochus had high hopes of becoming uh, a world ruler. So, verse 17, he invaded Egypt with a strong force with chariots and elephants and cavalry and with a large fleet. He engaged King Ptolemy of Egypt in battle, and Ptolemy turned and fled before him, and many were wounded and fell. They, capture, uh, they captured the fortified cities in the land of Egypt, and he plundered the land of Egypt. So this little paragraph tells us that part of his war arsenal are elephants. In chapter 3, in verse 34, it says this. He left uh, Lysias, a distinguished man of royal lineage, in charge of the king's affair from the river Euphrates to the borders of Egypt. Lysias was also to take care of his son, Antiochus, until he returned. And he turned over to Lysias half of his forces and the elephants and gave him orders about all that he wanted done. Again, another reference to the fighting uh, element of Antiochus. And then one more in chapter 6. It tells us in chapter 6 that um, he, uh, this is fascinating to me, in verse 28, the king was enraged when he heard this. That's another backstory that I'm not going to get into. But it says, he assembled all his friends, the commander of his forces and those in authority. Mercenary forces also came to him from other kingdoms and from islands of the seas. Isn't that interesting? Mercenary forces. We just saw that uh, recently with that um, that guy that was killed, uh, the Russian uh, mercenary force that was trying to take, um, take out Putin a couple weeks ago. It says here in verse 30, the number of his forces was 100,000 foot soldiers, 20,000 horsemen, and 32 elephants accustomed to war. Now, we might think elephants, slow, plodding, but imagine the power to pull weapons, food, and other things like that. So that's where some scholars get this idea that maybe this fourth beast is kind of a composite of a known creature, an elephant, but has been modified with the iron teeth and the 10 horns and a little horn. So if you want to go back, if you're probably still there in chapter seven, out of the mouth of this little horn comes arrogant speaking. Um, so most scholars think this is describing Antiochus Epiphanes' ambitions of wanting to conquer Egypt and his arrogant attitude toward the Jews that he chooses to desecrate the Jewish holy place, the temple. And so um, even though there's a lot of debate 
that's going on. I give you some backstory here on this slide and in your handout. The most important thing um, that would be apropos during this particular time period uh, would be this latter ruler in the Greece empire. However, by the time you get to the first century, Christians would begin to associate this beast with Rome because now Rome has come in and has conquered Greece. So again, there's different ways of trying to, to I guess, interpret this information. No matter who it is, though, um, what we find here is this is the ultimate opponent to God. So that's why uh, some um, kind of left behind approach to eschatology would try to associate this with an antichrist, the antichrist that would arise before the coming of Christ, because the next paragraph talks about this one who is coming who's going to um, uh, to conquer this evil empire. But before I get to the next slide, I want to see if you have any thoughts. So in verse nine, judgment comes. So oppression and judgment replacement kingdom. That's kind of the cycle. It says here in verse nine, as I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne were fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued if, and flowed out of his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So here is a picture of judgment. Couple of observations. Do you notice the word thrones here? As I watched, not throne, singular, thrones were set in place, plural. So what does this represent? In the ancient mind, this could represent the heavenly council that could be a part of uh, God's um, servants, i.e. the four winds or the angelic host, that, that take their place. It's sort of like the situation room, okay? And here's the ancient one who has all this figurative uh, imagery here. He's got um, clothing that's white as snow and hair is white as pure wool and fiery flames. Again, apocalyptic type literature uses a lot of these vivid pictures. This is why Daniel is probably the closest uh, genre to the book of Revelation, because it uses that same technique. What we see here taking place, and the overall impact of this imagery here is for effect. I don't think you need to dissect it. Well, what does 
what does the white hair represent and uh what does uh the clothing white represent this is all for dramatic effect to show the power of this individual which in this case is called the ancient one or the ancient of days which represents god what i think is taking place is the political sovereignty that is represented in these four beasts is going to be replaced by the sovereignty of the one who is seen as the God, who is the ancient one, the ancient of days. So even in the Old Testament, you have what is called enthronement Psalms. Uh, Psalm 97 is an example of that, where God is seen as the king over the entire uh, universe. And um, you see a multitude of attendants that is serving God. You have that picture in Revelation chapter four as well. So it's almost as if the situation room is the court in session. And here's this arrogant um, individual that is um, trying to um, resist God because he wants to be a sovereign one. He wants to be the world dictator. He wants to be the one with all the power. But heaven is claiming a right to rule through the ancient one. And then what we're told is that this vision here is then moves on in verse 11. And here's what it says. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is the one that shall never be destroyed. Sounds very much like the book of Revelation, chapters four and five. And in this particular picture, what we see taking place is this one that is coming. Now, we're not told at this point who this one is. He's just simply called here in the RSV um, a human being. In other trans translations like the NIV, he is called the son of man. Now, modern scholars understand that the Son of Man could refer to either faithful Jews um, or angelic beings, like we've already seen Gabriel and Michael in the book of Daniel. It's highly unlikely that it's actually thinking about Messiah, right, This at this point. But it could. And so it could be the Messiah it could represent the faithful Jews that are standing against these emperors, or it could represent uh, God's court that is fighting on behalf of God's kingdom. So now Daniel's all confused, as we all are, as we read this chapter. So he needs to have this dream interpreted for him. So in his distress what we're told beginning in verse 15 that he is given an interpretation 
And this is, again, is going to be a repetition. We've seen this in several different chapters in Daniel. We're given the same information another time. Verse 15, though, says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. And I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this. So he said that he would, dis he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall rise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the whole most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Then I desire to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. There's that stamping again, which could possibly lend credence to the elephant interpretation. And concerning the 10 horns that were on its head and concerning the other horn, which came up to make room for which three of them fell out. Um, this could be three rulers that were conquered in battle or replaced by this small horn. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly that seemed greater than the others. And as I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones, the Jewish people, and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. Then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. So here's what um, an Old Testament scholar by the name of John uh, Golden Gay states about this particular he says the theme that is central to daniel as it is no, uh, to no other book in the old testament is the kingdom of god the book as a whole concerns how the rule of god becomes a reality of this world in contexts where jews as such lack political power but where the gentiles who do exercise political power are assumed to have religious responsibility the purpose of god is to be realized on earth, but by the transcendent power of heaven. The stories in Daniel portray it, doing so via the heathen ruler who receives his kingly power from God and is responsible to act as his vice regent in his world. But they recognize that often the heathen ruler fails to exercise his power in a way that reflects this understanding of his calling. So, even in the New Testament, you see in the book of Romans where those who hold political power receive this power from God. Here you see an element of that. And when they do not exercise their, um, their God-given authority properly and on behalf of those that they are in charge of, God then removes them from power. So, what you have here in this elaboration, I think, is just what the Jews were going through during that time, moving toward uh, the second century, and uh, how God keeps coming to their aid in the midst of their heartache and their trouble and suffering. Ultimately, as this chapter winds up, uh, you find that. It's repeated again in verses 23 down through 28, 
that the fourth kingdom, the most important oppressor uh, against the Jewish people, are going to be trampled down and broken into pieces. So here's a poetic uh, expression of that. Notice verses 23 through 27 is indented in your Bible. So this is some type of liturgy that is used by the Jewish people. And uh, they celebrate, as back in the book of Exodus, when after they came through um, uh, the the sea, they sang a song of victory. And I think that's kind of what this is, too. Here's how it goes. This is what he said. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. There shall be different from all uh, that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones and shall be and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law, and they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. So here's what uh, is taking place here when Antiochus Epiphanes goes into uh, the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar. He is trying to destroy the Jewish religion. But, verse 26, then the court shall sit in judgment. There's that idea of the situation room again. And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So the Jewish people will end up being the victors in this, and then the a chapter closes out. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in mind. So he's he's holding all of this in, this interpretation that has been given to him. So what, when I was reading this, I was thinking of a ballad. Um, are you familiar with the song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald at all? Okay. It tells the account of the boat going down in Lake Erie. And, and that's the way this strikes me, this paragraph. It's kind of like a ballad that's being told of how Antiochus Epiphanes is going to end up being judged and brought low. So in the meantime, what needs to take place? Well, the people of God need to continue to... Uh, maintain faithfulness to uh, to their God. And um, Daniel, obviously, is terrified and concerned about all this. But this vision not only should give him assurance, what it's going to do is give others that come later uh, under Antiochus's rule uh, assurance as well. So, I let me uh, let me stop there before I have one more slide that I'm gonna, uh, or I think one or two, that I I think how we can maybe uh, talk about the application of this chapter because 
all at this point, it just kind of reads as uh, an episode in history as we we read what's going on here uh, and what occurred during the life of the nation of Israel. Do you, do you have some thoughts? I have a quick question, maybe in um, verse 25, it says, uh, the saints, uh, they, they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I have <clears throat> Go ahead. written there, at one other time I heard this, like a different teaching, but I would say I have year, two years, one half year, but what, what is that all about? Do you know? Well, we're going to get to that in a couple chapters because what happens is the interpreters will begin to talk about um, the 70th week of Daniel, which if you've been around evangelical Christianity at all, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the 70th week of Daniel being the great tribulation and the times, time and half a time could represent a a um a part of that great tribulation which a lot of uh evangelical scholars think that that's seven years in length so this could be like three and a half years it gets it gets pretty complicated and and it gets a little bit convoluted at times trying to figure out how this might apply in later generations but it does definitely does talk a little bit here uh, about a timeline of he shall be given power for time two times and half a time this might just be simply a way of saying he he's not going to lose power immediately that he's going to have some time that he's going to be able to rule over the holy ones the the people of israel uh, but eventually he's going to be taken down. Or we might, might want to try to apply that more literally and and decide, okay, does this refer to an actual timeline? Hmm. Let's hold off on doing that before we get into a bigger bite of, of time references like the 70 weeks uh, that's coming in a couple chapters. And then I'll try to put a schematic up to kind of show you how different different Bible interpreters try to flesh this out a little bit in terms of uh, not only Daniel, but on into the New Testament as well. But it's definitely a time reference. It, yeah, I've done that uh, timeline where um, the Messiah is coming and Daniel and I work through that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, um, so we're going to get into some very some very tricky areas to navigate in the in the coming chapters okay thanks yeah. <laughs> but they're all kind of interrelated so all right anybody else okay so what i've been trying to do each week is after we look at a chapter is try to make an, a theological assessment of the chapter and what I want to talk a, lot, a little bit about tonight is, okay, we've been talking about different dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now Daniel's having dreams. And that raises a question that we can discuss for a little bit here. And that is, 
um, what role do dreams play in the human experience? If somebody at work said, I had a dream last night, I think this is predicting what's going to happen in the coming year. I think most of us probably would go, this individual, um, maybe they have some emotional difficulties that are going on and these dreams are trying to work those things out or whatever. But don't you find it interesting that we don't put that same criteria on people who have dreams in the Bible? We just take it at face value. Okay, Daniel has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. That's just that, you know, John on the Isle of Patmos has a vision. And we think that's just normal. But what we know now about dreams uh, is quite interesting. Contemporary psychology will tell us that um, in our dreams sometimes are rooted some of our fears. Um, some of our sorrows, some of the things on a subconscious level. And so I just find it interesting that we have kind of a two-tier way of looking at dreams. We don't tend to evaluate the ones that are in the Bible. We just take it at face value. But when we hear somebody else uh, saying something like that, we might roll our eyes a little bit and say, that's crazy. That's really crazy. So the question that this chapter opens up is, is God still working through dreams today? Hmm. And if he is, how do we know if what is being given is from him or if it's a psychological um, reaction to some trauma or difficulties or grief or, or all those type of things? So let me throw that on the table uh, uh, for a couple minutes here. What are your thoughts about that? Any any, uh, any insights that you have or uh, opinions that you have on that? I, well, I had, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I had a weird dream. Um, oh, back years ago. It was about my dad's sister. And I was dreaming that we were at her house and everybody was sitting around the table, my cousins and my dad and everybody, but she wasn't there. And that was like in September. And then that November of 2002, she passed away. Hmm. And I was like, whoa. Hmm. I mean, it was just, just strange. I mean, did you connect the two when she passed away? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe mm -hmm. it was saying I should go see her. Or, you know, afterwards I thought about it. Maybe I should have gone up there. Or, you know, mm. but it was so strange. But did you, was there any, um, foresight to that she was in bad health or anything like that that would have led you to think that she possibly would pass away or anything like that um i knew she was having health problems but i didn't know that they were 
you know, life threatening or whatever. Uh-huh. So I don't so you know. that's a perfect example, Beth, of okay, here you have this experience. Yeah. And what do I do with it? Is it something that's a premonition of what's to come? Is it is it something that subconsciously or even consciously I've been worried about or and it it's come out? So yeah. you know, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Kate, were you gonna say something? Oh, I was just gonna say, um, I often can figure out things and uh, wake up and have an answer to things in my dreams. But um, I was going to ask you, doesn't Jesus actually refer to Daniel as a prophet? So um, he he was saying that he was an actual prophet or am I wrong? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Jesus will make reference. Uh, here is an individual that was immersed in Old Testament understanding and learning. And um, some of his references to Old Testament passages or personalities um, are are very direct. Uh, he talks about Jonah being uh, in the belly of the earth. Uh, him being in the belly of the earth as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Um, so yes, Jesus will make reference to different people. And um, and so will some of the other writers uh, of the New Testament as well. In the book of Acts, uh, references made to Joel, who says your, um, your old men will How's that go? We'll have uh, dream dreams and your young man will have, I'd have to look, it's an accent. But um, but yes, uh, there is definitely that connection from New Testament back into Old Testament accounts and personalities for sure. Yep. Okay, anybody else on that? Now, everybody's different. Um, Esty dreams in living color. And she's able to remember that. I wake up and I go, I must dream, but I don't, I don't remember. You know, I don't remember anything uh, of dreams that I have. So I, everybody's different about that. But dreams play an important, um, it's an, an important element in so much of the Bible. So it, it's good to do some reading on and thinking about. Another in, uh, element regarding uh, these dreams, are these dreams deterministic? And what I mean by that, um, are they actual pictures of the outcome of history? Or is it more a picture of how God intervenes in the course of history? Um, and these dreams represent... God being on the throne, that's been a theme here in this particular chapter, the, the one who's the Ancient of Days. So you can see a couple different options here um, down in the slide. We can see the dreams as the promise that God is still involved in history, even when we cannot determine when and where he's going to intervene in history. So another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says, no prophet ever sees things under the aspect of eternity. It is always uh, partisan theology, always for the moment and always for the concrete community, satisfied to see only a piece of it all and to speak out uh, of that at the risk of contradicting the rest of it. In other words, um, 
what he's trying to say is these visions and dreams always have a local connection uh, to the context um, within the lifetime of those that are hearing it, reading it, um, mm -hmm. and trying to interpret it. That's one aspect that's difficult because, as we'll see, when we come to the 70 weeks of Daniel, uh, scholars will say, well, the first 69 weeks have been fulfilled, but there's still a 70th week that's hanging out there that's not been fulfilled. And someday, and we, they've been saying this since the time of Jesus, mm -hmm. we actually thought uh, many in the time of Jesus thought they were in the last days, but it's been hanging out there for over 2000 years now. So um, we'll get to that. Uh, but I guess what I, I think about these dreams is first, don't take them out of their immediate cultural context first. And this these series of dreams here in Daniel chapter seven, I think are, are being read by a community of people who have been suffering for a long time under these foreign uh, regimes, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then on into the New Testament, Rome itself. So um, just keep that in mind about the the dream concept. I think it's a good one for us to uh, think about when we talk about the uh, um, the the elements of the, uh, the different chapters here in Daniel. But other comments, questions, uh, insights that you have. Well, you're troopers, because this is not easy sledding. I mean, these these chapters are difficult. And, and they are um, books, I think, at times, people camp too much in at times and become very speculative about how they are applied. So we have to be careful with that. So anybody else? One correction. Yeah. Fitzgerald went down in Lake Superior. Superior? <laughs> no. Bud said the same thing. <laughs> oh, did it? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Very good. Why was I thinking like Erie? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's too shallow. <laughs> well, there was a there was a ship that went down in Lake Erie, the Griff the Griffin or the Griffin. Yeah, yeah. That went down close here to where we live yeah here. yeah all right ladies and gentlemen thanks for your time and uh thank i hope you have a good rest of the evening all right thank you, you too. Thanks. 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 Thanks.